Welcome to another season of Writers' Festival Radio. Thank you for listening. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and we're still dealing with this pandemic, so for the time being, we'll have to keep connected virtually, even as we maintain our distance. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library for their collaboration in our second virtual season. The season has begun, and it's all available online at writersfestival.org, so all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. I want to thank you in advance for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. I also want to thank the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. Our host today is Rhonda Douglas. She's a poet, editor, and fiction writer, and a great friend of the festival. Rhonda will be talking with Catherine Bush about her acclaimed novel, Blaze Island. We'll start with a taste of the prose, then Rhonda will introduce us to Catherine and her remarkable novel. She was in the blast. Wind and rain tore at her. Wind ripped through her jacket, her hair, her skin, her mouth, a monstrous fury. Was this the worst? The edge of the hugest hurricane ever to pound up the coast? She was nothing to it. Wind would carry her away. But there was someone else, a boy, a young man, trying to pull himself up the steps to her house. She had to help. She reached out. There was a tug on her hood, her shoulder, an immense strength wrenching her back as she struggled forward, pulling her into the house while the rain bit her face. Her father, there was ferocity in him, her stern protector. Get inside. He'd thrown on his rain jacket, a rope wrapped round his waist. I'll hold onto the rope, Miranda said, giddy and reeling. They were both in the doorway. Wind and rain swept into the room behind them. No, you won't, her father said. Tie the rope to the bottom banister. The house would be his counterweight. In the first hurricane ever to brush the island, Hurricane Jose, he'd struggled outside in the middle of the night to close the door of their store shed, which had swung open and been caught, swept off his feet, forced to crawl back to the house, inch his way back. Eleven then, Miranda had slept through all of it. He told her the story the morning after, leaving Miranda with nothing but bolts of panic and remorse. Without knowing it, she'd almost lost him, the only parent she had left. After that, Alan had strung up ropes between their outbuildings whenever high winds and storms were brewing. Now, soaked to the skin, she stumbled back through the kitchen, ordinary and warm, cards and mugs still on the table. Miranda's heart surged into the storm again to the stranger. Breathless, she tugged the rope around the banister as tight as she could with a knot her father had taught her. When the rope went taut, it caught the leg of a kitchen chair and toppled it, pitched the table up against the wall. In the mudroom, her father was a silhouette beyond the door, wind pouring into the house, rain like savage stars all around him. Braced against the railing, he lowered himself to reach the stranger. Everything in the room rippled and shook. The empty egg basket took flight. Miranda almost tripped over the rope. 
Her father hauled the stranger up the steps as the wind screamed. On his hands and knees, the young man was close enough that she could extend a hand to him once more, she and her father working together. The stranger's hand, cold and wet, grasped Miranda's. While her father grabbed his jacket, she pulled him in, battling the wind for him, dragging him over the lintel. He whispered something as he collapsed to the floor. And that was Catherine Bush reading from her latest novel, Blaze Island. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks, Rhonda. It's lovely to be here with you. Good, good. We're going to have a great time because I loved this book. It's so beautiful. Um, I, you must have been delighted with the cover. I mean, Goose Lane does such lovely books and it's just such a lovely object in addition to what's inside. Thank you. Yes, the cover image is by the um, Newfoundland artist and printmaker, Christine Koch, and I owe her so much for her beautiful art. I think it's stunning. It's a stunning, moody image of an island um, with these fiery streaks in it. So it brings up the sort of ice and fire heat um, themes of the novel beautifully. Yeah, it really does. They did a great, great job. So um, so let me introduce you. Uh, for folks who don't know Catherine's work, Catherine is the author of five novels, including Blaze Island. Her previous novels include the Canada Reads long-listed book Ac Accusation and the Trillium Award shortlisted Claire's Head, The Rules of Engagement, which was a New York Times notable book and an LA Times best book of the year, um, as well as Minus Time, which was shortlisted for the City of Toronto. Toronto Book Award. She was recently a Fiction Meets Science Fellow at the HWK in Germany. She's spoken internationally about addressing the climate crisis in fiction. She's also an Associate Professor at the University of Guelph and coordinates the Creative Writing MFA, and you can find her online at katherinebush.com. And I want to say, based on your bio, I want to say she lives in Toronto, but I know actually you're in Eastern Ontario. Yes, these days I go back and forth between Toronto and Eastern Ontario. Um, and actually much of Blaze Island was written in this old pre-Confederation schoolhouse in Eastern Ontario, um, in the country, Alperti's country, north of Belleville. Um, you know, it was inspired by Fogo Island off the um, northeast coast of Newfoundland, somewhere I went every summer while right, working on the novel. But, um, but this, this old schoolhouse has become my writing haven. Nice. And have you noticed climate change sort of being manifest in that area while you've been living there? I would say that we we do experience more unpredictable weather and definitely more droughts than we used to. And um, there's an organic farmer artist at the end of my road. And I think she can certainly att attest to that experience, um, as, as can I. So that's one of the, the formative things I notice around here. So, and I'd love to talk about um, Fogo Island and you were in Tilting in particular, and it is, you know, the book is based loosely, um, not so loosely, rather tightly, I would say. You made me homesick. I'm originally from rural Newfoundland and you, you made me completely homesick. Um, and uh, so tell me about the inspiration for the novel um, as far as it relates to, to Newfoundland and the, and the landscape there. Okay, I'm just going to set the novel up a little bit more for folks that don't know it yet. Um, so in Blaze Island, a climate scientist named Alan Wells, despairing at the world's inaction um, about climate, climate change, and also set upon by climate change deniers, flees with his young daughter to this remote island in the North Atlantic. And then years later, Miranda Wells finds her life overturned by the arrival of strangers 
and learns how far her father will go to protect her. And the novel opens in the midst of this huge hurricane, which has stormed up the northeast coast of Newfoundland um, and lands this mysterious stranger on Miranda's doorstep. And that's where the novel opens. Um, and yes, it was inspired by The Tempest. I saw this amazing production at the RSC some years ago in England with Patrick Stewart of, of um, Star Trek that. fame wow. as, uh, yeah, as Prospero. And he was really amazing and virile, not the old guy with the beard. And, um, but I was also really struck by the fact that the production was set on an Arctic island. And it just, I've always been very drawn to the North, um, snow and ice and that landscape and, you know, the necessity of cold for our survival on the planet, which often has, I think has been overlooked, less so now maybe. Um, but so I was so drawn to that Northern landscape. And, and I really started to think about Prospero as a climate scientist who both wants to manipulate the world to make things better, but also protect his daughter passionately. Um, and so I began to think about this, you know, translation um, into a novel and I needed to find an island. And I've always loved Newfoundland and I love the climate, the land, the air um, just has a really profound effect on me. And I stumbled, I guess, felicitously upon Fogo Island. It was before the inn, but there was the beginning of the Shorefast Residencies for Artists. And the Shorefest folks actually directed me to Tilting, which has its own artist residency program. And I applied and was accepted and, um, and, and tracks that the Tilting um, Culture and Recreation Society was kind enough to invite me back again over the years. And, um, and I would go back on my own resources and, and did stay in Tilting. And especially on this, in this house called Reardon House outside the village, which is by itself on a cove, on Sandy Cove. And as soon as I walked in the door the first time, I thought, this is where my characters, Alan Wells, you know, the displaced climate scientist, fugitive climate scientist, and his daughter Miranda have to live. I have to find a way to stay in this house. And so, you know, I begged the, the, the folks who ran the residency in Tilting to have me back so I could stay in the Reardon house and, and just, you know, have an embodied experience there, listen to the wind through its walls, walk out the back door and see icebergs um, floating past as, as you can. Um, so I did, I went back over eight years and um, I'm glad if you grew up in rural Newfoundland and, and the novel works for you experientially, I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad. I mean, it's not supposed to be an authentic portrait of, of tilting, but it's definitely a fictionalized ver version of that land and landscape that draws on everything I, I learned there to tell this slightly fantastical tale, which engages with climate engineering and the arrival of strangers, including this airline magnet. Um, so yes, but the, but the wind and the life out there was um, capturing some of that was really important to me. Yeah, I love the, um, there's a little map at the start of the book. Um, and it kind of, you know, it had that like, um, fantasy world, Lord of the Rings, you know, kind of quality to it, right? When you get a little world map at the start, that was kind of fun. So, so tell me more about um, the, the using the Tempest as um, inspiration for this story. I mean, obviously, you know, Miranda and then um, Alan's name, you know, before he uh, decided to try to hide was Milan. And, you know, you can kind of see it all coming through, but how did you, um, how did you work with it? And were there any challenges that you you faced as you were trying to, to do that? Like, how did that 
eventually interweave into the book for you from uh, yeah. yeah um I mean there's a whole history of Shakespeare adaptations and Shakespeare adaptations into novels and Tempest adaptations um Margaret Atwood has has done one um Hagseed, and I was I was even more inspired by um, Jeanette Winterson's a, Ga a Gap of Time, which is um, a rewriting and updating of um, a Winter's Tale. And I just very much I like the energy of of her her writing and that that way that she combined the quality of a tale that, with something that was very contemporary. And tonally, that was that was what I was going for. Um, and so. Yeah, I, I so I, I knew I wanted to work with the Tempest, um, and I'm trying to think of of other other right Marina Warner, I believe the the British writer M A Cesar's play La Tempête um, has also rewritten rewritten the Tempest, and you know so it's a it's a play that's in, that a lot of people have engaged with, and so I wanted to enter that conversation um, because I thought that it could really work with climate change material. Um, and from very early on, I was interested in this issue of climate engineering, um, which for those that don't, that don't know, is conscious interventions in, um, in, in the world's climate systems. And I was interested in solar radiation management, which is sending tiny particulate matter into the upper atmosphere to um, lower global temperatures the way that masses of volcanic ash do, it doesn't actually affect the, the carbon problem. So it's really a stopgap measure. It could potentially be done. Um, but the ethics are so complex, you know, whether we should do this, whether it just gets our attention away from um, taking action to get us off fossil fuels. And so a novel, it seems to me, is such a rich site for a combination of emotional and ethical debate about something that's you know, very relevant and, and contemporary. Elizabeth Colbert, the um, renowned sort of American science writer addresses this issue in her new book. Um, David Keith, who's a Canadian scientist now at Harvard is one of the, um, the big investigators of solar radiation management. So there's a Canadian angle. Um, and, and so I wanted to, you know, take something that was real science, um, but give it this slightly fantastical frame um, in, the no in the novel. And this is what Alan is researching from a gut level because he really wants to protect his daughter. How can he create a world that's safe for his daughter? And I took that emotional impulse from The Tempest, from Prospero, who also you know, wants to create a better world for his, for his child, his daughter, and, and you know, manipulates both the weather and brings these strangers to his island in order to, to do this. But I wanted to give my young Miranda more agency um, and, and sort of chart her discovery of change, um, what it's like to suddenly be in a world where the past just doesn't provide guideposts for the future. And I also wanted to enter the, the character of Caliban, who becomes Caleb um, in, my, in my novel, who's a young um, local boy who works for Alan, the scientist, but only has a vague sense of what these strange experiments are that Alan is conducting and who these strangers are, both scientists and not, that Alan brings to the island. And so, you know, Caleb's growing awareness of threat 
um, you know, the beautiful natural world in which he lives is not so separate from everything else that's going on on the planet. So what did, you know, how does he create a future? And just as Miller Miranda is trying to figure out, how do I, how do I create a future um, when nothing now that these strangers have arrived and she learns more about what her father is up to looks like it did yesterday, which I think in a pandemic is an emotional experience that many of us can identify with. And I, um, although I didn't plan to have a novel come out in a pandemic, um, I feel that this not Blaze Island has resonances to our pandemic experiences of, of change and disruption and how we deal with it and how we deal with the feeling of being islanded in some ways in, in our lives and grappling with that. Miranda has been very protected. Her father won't let her leave the island. Um, and so how, you know, how do you live under those conditions? So those are the, some of the things that I was thinking about, but I would also say that you don't need to know the Tempest to read this novel. And that's super important. I don't, I don't mind if you, if you've never heard of the Tempest and read this novel or are engaged um, with the story, ultimately, I, you know, it has to live separately from its underpinnings. Yeah, yeah. And it, it completely is own, you know, its own work, right? It's, I agree, you don't need to know it. It just sort of adds that nice extra layer for those of us who like to play around with that stuff, so. Well, that's good, I like that too. So um, I I had an, ex so I, I did some research, a little bit of research, not a lot before I started reading the book. And then I thought so there had been mentions of in different reviews, you know, the magic realism. And then I started reading the book and I thought, gosh, you know, it's such a subtle touch that it didn't even feel like that sort of, you know, maybe there, you know, it didn't feel like high magic realism to me. I'm thinking of like Miranda, you know, feeling like she's seeing uh, and interacting with her mother's ghost and Caleb's um, sense of, you know, how he sort of comes out of himself and into uh, wildlife. I don't know, it didn't, it felt, so what were you trying to do with the magic realism? Because it almost felt like, I don't know, I, it was really, <laughs> it was definitely more on the side of the real to me. Like I didn't question it for a minute and feel like, you know, fantasy or, you know, I don't know. No, it's not supposed to be fancy. I mean, one of my real interests, a lot of people, a lot of writers who are approaching writing about the climate emergency, approach it through the dystopic and through dystopia. And there's a strong tradition of, of that. And it's a powerful way to voice, you know, the imminent threat to our, our future and what might happen. But I was really interested in creating a world that was very much of the present. And if you work it out, I mean, the novel is kind of nominally set in 2019, minus all the politics. I mean, I just didn't want to deal with, um, you know, po yeah, politics and- um, What's his face? Yes, yes, that, yeah, that guy. Um, so, so, but I really wanted, um, a realistic things, sense of things that might happen now, experiments that could happen now, and what it feels like to, you know, as a young person or as a as a parent, as someone who's our age, to be grappling with um, the the climate emergency now and all those feelings of of grief and and loss and nostalgia that that we're we're feeling in this in this moment um, as our world becomes more unpredictable and and shifty, and so. But I'm also, as I said earlier, I'm just attracted to something that feels like a quality of a tale. And, and it's very difficult writing about the climate 
crisis in, in fiction. And this is something I wrote about in an essay in Canadian Notes and Queries, partly because people see it as such a depressing topic. It's like, oh, I don't want to read about that, about that. Another because it's so serious. Novel. Yeah. Yeah. And so I really wanted to tell a story that seduces people, seduces people with you know, that slightly fantastic quality of a tale, you know, here, come and listen to the story um, that has a, a plot that pulls you along as you try and figure out what, what happens. Um, yeah, I really think of them as the seductions of storytelling. And then I got kind of thrown off guard sometimes when people said, whoa, I really enjoyed your novel. And I thought, oh, it's a novel that grapples with the climate crisis. But but I also embraced it when people said that because I do want that sense of story immersion um, for people to listen the way they would listen to a, a, you know, a fairy tale or any tale. This is our world and not our world. And our, our, our world is always stranger than you think. And you know, all the material in the novel that's about climate engineering. I mean, that science seems so fantastical, but it's real. And, you know, we tend to bring a kind of magical thinking to so many things like, oh, the world will get better, everything will be fine, or this fantastic science will get us out of this, you know, um, epical problem that we're in. And maybe it, maybe it won't. Um, maybe we have to change ourselves in more fundamental ways. So maybe we have to retreat from that kind of magical thinking and find, find a kind of realism that for me is based in this broader kinship of care for others, you know, care beyond the human for the animals, the way Caleb finds himself dissolving into the bodies of fish and birds and, and caribou. Um, that feels to me essential as a, you know, as a human gesture at this time. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because I think that, you know, the book is, there's sort of, there's threads of love story and there's threads of sort of coming of age and, you know, there's so much, so many different, and yet it is still a page turner. Like I had, you know, like trouble turning the light out at night, you know, as I'm reading it um, because it's, you know, it's just super engaging um, both in terms of the relationship of the characters and what's happening, but also this drama that's unfolding when a bunch of mainlanders show up after the hurricane and you know it's there's sort of a little mystery at the heart of the story really about who they are and what they're there for and you know ill or good and and so on so can you say a little bit more about sort of the the you know strangers come um and and um how 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 that interacts with the climate um climate change themes that are in the novel as well yeah, um, I mean, insofar as I was following the template of The Tempest, strangers did need to arrive on the island um, and they needed to be real outsiders. And, and I needed to find some kind of equivalent for a king, which is, you know, who shows up in, um, in The Tempest and who better these days than some, you know, uber capitalist, which is, you know, who I made my character. It, it's feeling slightly out of joint that he's an uber capitalist who um, is a you know billionaire airline magnet, um, which you know during the pandemic is probably not the best thing to be. But um, I didn't write this with the knowledge of the pandemic, um, so he's a you know billionaire airline magnet. And I also was really interested in um, you know the intersection of 
capitalism and greed with these kind of scientific projects. And, and someone I know in the kind of environmental humanities community said to me that he had not seen a novel that not only um, grappled with climate engineering and the ethical debates about should we or shouldn't we, but it's lure you know, to profiteers and capitalists who might land on this as a way you know, to make money um, or you know, get a kind of capitalist private control of the weather, which seems nightmarish to me, but, um, but something that I wanted to investigate um, in, in, and play out in the way that you can with the, with the novel. So I will, you know, I will say there were, you know, slight nods through the hair of my character to Richard Branson. <laughs> um, so that was, that was, that was my, my thought. And then his son, um, who also arrives on the island, is this, you know, radical anti, anti-capitalist, um, you know, a, a very, uh, you know, to Miranda, provocative and, and, you know, seductive young man. And, and yeah, the, the novel definitely needed a, a love story too, but it had to be convincing. I mean, it was, it was challenging to write, you know, the other thing about the Tempest is the really short time frame, And so to write something that was really compressed temporally, but with a lot of, of backstory and, um, and to make a convincing love story within that frame. But I love, I love that challenge too. I really did. So I, I, I'm actually glad you said that because um, one of the things I, I uh, enjoyed about the novel was the handling of time. And so I wanted to ask you about your thinking around time and structure when you were writing the novel, because it goes back and forth between like the past past, the immediate past, the present, um, really seamlessly, and I, that's super hard to do. So what was your thinking um, around time and structure as you were writing the novel? Oh, thanks for that question. Um, yeah, you know, I think all, all writers, and I'm, you know, I'm sure you experience this too, Rhonda, you know, with each project, we like to set ourselves a new challenge or technical challenge. And, um, and I've certainly played with time frame frames between present and past and interweaving them, you know, in the rules of engagement, for instance. But I'd never worked with such a tight time frame. I mean, the novel takes place over 48 hours, which is double, you know, the, the actual play of The Tempest, but it's still really tight. And obviously there's a lot of backstory behind, behind that. Um, and so, yeah, you know, the question is how, how to interweave it seamlessly. Um, because there's, you know, Miranda and Alan's story of their their life before they come to the island and what drives him to the island and the way in which he's set upon by climate change deniers, which really draws on actual um, experiences of both American and British uh, climate scientists in 2009 who were email hacked. Um, and, you know, it was all over the press and they were accused of being frauds and fudging their, their data. I didn't know that and based so, on a true story. Oh. Yeah, yeah, that all draws, you know, really um, climate gate, um, it was what it was called. And some of the scientists, you know, were practically driven to, to suicide. It was really emotionally um, fraught and, and horrible. And, um, and, you know, something else dreadful happens to Alan, my climate scientist, in the midst of all this, which is a further, you know, propulsion to the, the island. Um, so, yeah, you know, all that had to be interwoven into, into the story. But I know as a reader that I, I mean, I love movement in a story, but I also love that layered sense of, of time. And, 
And in the novel, I was also really conscious of deep time, time beyond the human and trying to constantly gesture the reader in that direction too. You know, think about our geological past, our planetary past, you know, and, and, um, and especially Fogo Island has this amazing um, geological history. And I wish I could have put more geology in, in the book, but I, I wanted um, that awareness through the icebergs in the novel to Caleb and Miranda go off to um, take in, um, in this one fraught sequence, these, this huge massing of icebergs in the bay off the island. Um, something irrevocable happens to them there, but the icebergs themselves are, you know, awful in their majesty. I mean, they're so, so huge and so many of them. And, you know, this was an experience. I didn't go out in a boat, but there was a summer when there were so many icebergs in the bay and they're 10,000 years old. This is just melting time. And, and on Fogo Island, you know, little bits of growlers, bits of iceberg wash up and people put bits of ice in your drink and you're swallowing ice that has 10,000 year old air bubbles in it. And you know, that air is in your body and that strange embodied connection to deep time. Um, I think it's, it's important for all of us to think about ourselves in that context. Um, and this is what we're losing, this 10,000 year old period of stable time on the planet that supported human life and all, you know, all other forms of life in the biosphere who we live with. So that was a sense of time I also really wanted to bring into the novel. Mm -hmm. Catherine, do you write poetry at all? Um, no, I don't. My first published work was a poem in Poetry Canada Review, but what I do write as well is short shorts. Um, so, you know, very micro fictions, which are the closest I get to poetry. It's like a poetic so, sensibility, you know, and definitely, um, yeah, just love that. Um, I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the climate change aspects. Um, and, um, I was uh, I was looking at the news, and yesterday, Sir David Attenborough spoke to the UN Security Council, and he said um, it's already too late. And I remembered looking at something from a climate scientist. I'm going to say like five, six years ago now, who basically was saying the same thing. He had like a, a private blog, and his I remember his comment was, "What we have left now is love." And when I read your novel and I thought about like how the community sort of operated there and, and Miranda and Alan's relationships and so on, I just was called back to that. But, and, and then you've said earlier, you don't see the novel as a dystopia. So can you just talk a little bit about, um, I'd just like to hear more thoughts from you on the, the climate connection in relation to how late it actually is. It's interesting. I didn't see the David Attenborough piece, but I was reading um, actually Rebecca Solnit, um, you know, the well-known act, American activist writer, was quoting um, Michael Mann, who's a very famous American climate scientist, one of the first to speak out actually, and sort of renowned for what is called the hockey stick graph, which you know shows um, extreme temperature rises that occurs in the 20th century. And he, she was quoting his um, opinion piece in Newsweek in which he was actually sounding very hopeful um, yesterday about, you know, and I think 
I mean, there's a feeling in the US based on um, President Biden's um, moves and his taking the crisis seriously, that there is um, the possibility for international movement at a sociopolitical scale that hasn't, hasn't happened. We have the technology we need. We do need some kind of global political will, which is, it is hard to manifest, but, but I think, the love piece is also really important. Um, the the care piece, and and in a sense, we won't get anywhere without that. We can't know, you know, what the future holds, or um, you know. But we, we do have to figure out, I think, how to hold on to hope, and while grieving what's been lost. But but we also don't know the possibilities that lie ahead. And love and caring for others seems to me so essential to how we find our way forward. Um, and creating communities of care that go beyond immediate families, that broaden our sense of kin, you know, throughout our human societies. We see the need for this during COVID um, when we look at who, um, in you know, socioeconomic terms are, are most affected by the pandemic but also broadening that beyond the human networks of care and kin that expand into the natural world. Um, because we do, and no matter how far we go in, you know, into our screens, we're still embodied creatures and we still need a biosphere to survive. Um, and so, yeah, we have to cultivate and culture Karen, it was it was funny yesterday. I was I was reading, I was reading historically actually about um, you know about Rachel Carson and her 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 fight um, against pesticides, and and feeling kind of depressed about it about it all. And I kept thinking, got to come back to the joy place. We've got to find our way back to the joy place. And that feels so essential as a storyteller, as a as a route for telling climate stories or any kind of story facing the uncertainty of the future through the pandemic, through the climate crisis, where's the joy spot, you know? And, and how do we bring attention to that? And the love, um, because the, you know, we need that love. Right. Um, that too is a survival tool, imagination and love, you know, they're huge. Right. Um, well, that kind of relates to something I wanted to ask you actually. So Alan uh, or Milan, he talks about using science and engineering solving to solve the climate crisis, and he refers to it as a useful tool in a desperate toolkit. And it made me wonder if you see art and writing in particular in a similar way. Um, I don't see them as desperate tools in a in a toolkit, and and I. I resist using the word tool to refer to imagination because I always think of tool as kind of a left hemispheric, you know, something that we grasp and manipulate and as a way to objectify the world. Whereas I think of imagination as a as a mind, as a mindscape, as, as a way of, you know, entering a mindscape to transform ourselves and, and the world. And really that's what we need to do. We need to transform ourselves, not, not, the, not the world, um, you know, as, as humans. Um, but I do feel that storytelling has a really important role to play. And, um, and I know I'll continue to, you know, somehow engage with the climate and the, you know, ecological loss in, in my fiction. 
Um, I'm working on another project at the University of Guelph I'm overseeing um, called Imagining Climates, which is looking at the way imagination is used to conceive and respond to the climate crisis in various fields and in interdisciplinary ways. And one of our, our projects has been um, asking a series of writers and scientists to respond with microclimate stories, like totally short little 150 word pieces about their, their own microclimates. And, and I found these so exciting to read, you know, responses from a number of younger writers associated with my MFA, Kinesia Lubrin, Tyler Pannock, Liz Howard, um, I'm gonna forget, um, Aaron Tang, um, Shun, who, who writes under Shun King. Um, but I just found myself so excited um, to read the, you know, the generative and transformative energy that writers are bringing um, to engagement with, with the climate and ecological crises right now. So I do feel that those are, are necessary um, modes of engaging with the climate crisis. Climate engineering is more of like a desperate tool. Um, it's also a sign of human ingenuity, but it doesn't get to the basic problem. It's really a stopgap measure, you know, to send particulates into the atmosphere as is conceived um, through solar radiation management, which is what Alan Wells is experimenting with um, because it doesn't grapple the issue, the fundamental issue of, of how to get off fossil fuels, which is what we need to do. And, you know, that's um, part of the, the, the plot hinges on, on that, you know, confrontations mm -hmm. with that and between Alan and um, Roy Hansen, the airline magnet that he brings to the island and, and, the, um, and his nemesis, the climate denier who got him into all sorts of trouble in, in the first place, who he also lures to the island to have a kind of comeuppance. Um, yeah, I love that whole thread. Um... And, and how it, you know, how it circles back in such a perfect way at the end. I also just want to say that, you know, it also felt really important to me in a novel that grappled with the climate crisis to have humor. And I hope that those characters um, bring some humor to the island. I mean, they get really drunk and stumble around in this landscape that they're completely out of sync with. And, and you know, they're just, they're lost in this, in this wild place. Um, but I, I, I had a lot of, I wanted to write a climate denier who wasn't, who was a comic figure, but I also wanted to take him seriously at the same time. Um, and that was the really interesting challenge. Um, Tony, my, my, my climate denier. And the cheap um, leather jacket. So, yeah. yes. Yeah. I could, I could smell it when you said that. I was like, oh, I could just <laughs> smell that jacket. Yeah. So good. Um, okay. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to ask maybe as a, as a final question today, um, I wanted to ask you about the final image of the novel, which is of icebergs returning. This is in the epilogue, icebergs returning, but then there's fewer and fewer. And when I closed the book, I thought, wait a minute, is that a hopeful image or a despairing image? Well, I'm very much a writer who, when it comes to endings, um, wants to co-create them with my reader. I really see the reader as an active participant in the novel, in creating this world and feeling, thinking, allowing themselves potentially to be transformed. And so there, you know, the, the book ends with this, this epilogue um, that that's 
voiced by we're not we're not sure sure who um i do want to leave some kind of of hope and and the world exists beyond the human you know there is a world in which we're you know we're completely entangled but but the story isn't just about us and and i want to leave leave that um, with the reader as well love that thank you so much catherine for being with us here today Thank you, Rhonda, for the fabulous conversation. That was author and editor Rhonda Douglas in conversation with Catherine Bush about her latest novel, Blaze Island. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.